Thanks, Tony. You're all very welcome. Hopefully none of us here have ever needed to get a proof of life video or a proof of life document. Proof of life video is something that happens when someone is kidnapped or held hostage and inevitably someone gets asked for a ransom and the person who gets asked to pay the ransom asks for some proof that the person is alive and so the kidnappers have to produce proof of life and that of course then allows things to proceed and causes great relief for those who love the person who is lost. Well, Paul the Apostle received a proof of life report from his friend Epaphras about the Christians who were meeting in the town of Colossae. He had never met them, he'd never been there, but he heard about them from Epaphras. And so he wrote to them, and this is the letter that he wrote to them, this letter of Colossians that we're going to be studying over these next few weeks. And we're reading the first half of chapter 1 this evening. Before we get to the text, maybe just a brief introduction to orientate us all about what was going on in Colossae and in this letter to the Colossians. As I say, it was written by Paul, and this is one of a group of his letters that are called the prison epistles, because he wrote them when he was in prison. And it's to a church, as we say, that he'd never met. So this isn't one of the churches that Paul had planted and he was away from, and he was writing to correct them on things. This is a church, these are people who he has never met before. Um, the, the church itself was probably started by Epaphras, and Epaphras was someone who was a friend of Paul's, a convert of Paul's actually, and a co-worker of Paul's, and actually probably imprisoned with Paul as well. And so what had happened was that Epaphras, who's from Colossae, he had heard the gospel from Paul, and he had taken it back to his hometown, and he had told it, and people had been converted, and this little church had started, and he has come back then at some stage to Paul, and he's told them about them, and then Paul and he have been imprisoned. And the church itself seems to be in pretty good order, seems to be going well. Um, Paul comments in the letter about the firmness of their faith. And uh, this isn't like Corinthians, where there were all sorts of chaotic moral behaviors going on. So the church, this little young church, seems to be going quite well. But there does seem to be an external threat to them. So a, a blend, we, can't, we don't know exactly what it was, but we can tell from some of the things that Paul writes some of what it consisted of. And it seems to be this blend of strict observance of the Old Testament law, harsh sort of physical religious practices, things called ascetic practices, so uh, fasting and, and, and very harsh treatment of yourself, um, and this fear or this belief that there were evil spirits permeating the world around us uh, that, that were causing problems and causing difficulties. And so it's likely that this came in some shape or form from the Jewish community in Colossae, and they were, they were thriving in the town as well then. And they were articulating a position that said, look, our bodies are frail. There are evil spirits in the world that we're subject to. But don't worry. We can offer you advice and we can offer you wisdom about how to deal with that. We can offer you certain practices that are very helpful. We can offer you certain things that you must do. And that will keep these evil forces at bay in your life. And so that worldview in the town was there, and Paul was worried that that would have an effect on this young church. And so he writes the letter to the Colossians. 
So let's, let's read it. Let's read the first 14 verses this evening. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth." just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." And just keep your Bible open this evening as we work through these verses. So we see two sections, don't we, here? We see two bits of Paul's prayer. We see the, the, the first half, I'm, I'm going to call it Paul's prayer of thanksgiving for their gospel life. And then in the second half, we have Paul's prayer of supplication for their gospel growth. Supplication is just one of those words that is a prayer where we're asking God for something. So in the first half, we have Paul's prayer of thanksgiving for their gospel life. And the second half, then, Paul's prayer of supplication for their gospel growth. And in that first section, verses 3 to 8, which is Paul's prayer of thanksgiving for them, the key idea is Paul's thankfulness. He is giving thanks to God for what he has heard about them. He's giving thanks to God for the life that is there. And by looking at why Paul is so thankful, we can get a little bit of an idea about what this gospel life actually is. And maybe you're sitting there this evening and you're thinking, what on earth is gospel life? What does that mean? Well, that's a really good question. And when we look at why Paul is so thankful for that gospel life with them, we, we get an idea of what gospel life really is. The first thing we see in Paul's prayer of thanksgiving is that gospel life is marked by faith, love, and hope. Faith, love, and hope. Gospel life is marked by faith, love, and hope. And that's a common little triple of words that we find in the New Testament. That's a common little triad that we see, a summary of what gospel life is. And so it's interesting, if you're not familiar with these things, for us just to think about that. Gospel life is marked by faith, love, and hope. And what are those words? Well, faith is, faith biblically is not a vague notion. It's not a vague concept like we hear in, in media and popular culture in the world around us, and everyone has faith and something. Faith is not something sort of vague and floaty. 
faith, first of all, is a set of beliefs, the faith. But that's not what this is. This is faith in Christ Jesus. So this is faith in a person. And we all like know what that means. So every time I preach, they give me a microphone. And every time I ask Richard, you promise me you're not going to turn it on until I'm up in the pulpit? And he says, yes. And inevitably, I have to do a last minute run to the bathroom. And I have faith that Richard will not turn the microphone on. So I have faith in Richard. And we all probably understand that sort of exercise of faith in something or someone throughout our day-to-day life. And that's the faith that's being talked about here. This is faith in Christ Jesus. This is faithful trusting of Jesus the Messiah for their salvation. And Paul loops back to that in verse 14, doesn't he? He says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So their faith that Jesus was going to rescue them, was going to save them, was going to redeem them, and was going to be able to forgive their sins, was going to be able to deal with the problem in their life. So the faith was in Christ Jesus. That idea of the gospel is what their faith was in. The gospel is the news about Jesus Christ. The news, as one person summarized it, that Jesus was Israel's Messiah, the true Lord who saves by making all things right, and that this Messiah lived, died, was raised, exalted, and will come again to establish the eternal kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. The gospel is first and foremost an announcement about Jesus Christ. And we are second in it because it has such implications for us in our lives. But the gospel is the declaration of who Jesus was. And so Paul thanks thanks God that they have faith in Christ Jesus. So that's faith. And then again, he he thanks for their love. And, And the love isn't like some sort of a pink mist. The love is something quite concrete says, the love that you have for all the saints, the love that you have for the other Christians, the love that you have for other believers. And that love for other Christians is something that marks gospel life as well. This is what Jesus said. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the distinctive thing that, that is how people know we follow Christ, because we love each other. That no matter what our background, no matter what our our upbringing, we love each other. And that is the witness to the fact that we are disciples of Jesus. That me from my background and you from your background, maybe born in a different country, maybe work a different job, maybe a very different experience of family growing up, all of these differences fall aside in our love for each other the love for the saints. This is how people will know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. So Paul is thankful for their faith in Christ Jesus. He's thankful for their love for all the saints. And then he also says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. What is that hope? So faith, love, and hope laid up for them in heaven. Well, Paul later on talks about Christ in you, the hope of glory. He tells them later on again, when, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. So the hope that the Christian has is that we will appear with Christ in glory. It is this eternal hope that our lives are on a path 
that the work of the gospel in our life was not just a one-moment thing that's done, but that we are being sanctified as our daily lives go on. We are being made more and more like Jesus, and someday we will appear with Him in glory. We have an eternal hope. Now, we have to ask ourselves, if we look at this, Paul puts in a because, which is a bit awkward. So, he says, the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in glory. And lots of ink has been spilled trying to answer that question. How does hope in something up there in the future cause us to love each other today, here, and now? I remember when I was really, really young, hearing people say, you know, there's people out there and they're so heavenly-minded, they're of no earthly use. So heavenly-minded, they're of no earthly use. Well, I've been a Christian for 30 years now, and I have yet to meet any of them. Because in fact, in my experience, it's often quite the opposite. It's those people who live their lives most obviously in the shadow of eternity, who are often the ones most gentle and loving and kind to their fellow Christians. And it's not Paul's point, but it's also, in my experience, the ones who are most zealous for evangelism. And that's backed up by what he's saying here, isn't it? The hope in heaven is the trigger for this love for each other. So how does that happen? What, how, how does that work? Well, sharing hope is a sort of a uniting experience, isn't it? You know, if, if you've read The Grapes of Wrath, all of these people moving out of the dust bowls of Oklahoma, their farms are destroyed, their lives are destroyed, and they're all heading to California, and they're all hoping that that's going to be like the promised land, and they're all in it together, and there's this fellowship and camaraderie and care for each other because they're sharing the hope of where they're going. And I often wonder what it must be like to move into a like a new housing estate where every house has just been built and everybody moves in all at once. And there's this sort of hope we're all starting our little lives here all at the same time. Surely that shared experience creates a bit of neighborliness, a bit of neighborly feeling that gets lost as people move on. So sharing hope in itself is a uniting experience. That's one way. I think when our hope is in the love and the graciousness of God... A spiritual thing happens in that we start to mirror that love and graciousness in our own characters. As we put our hope in that, we find we mirror it in ourselves. And then the hope itself, the hope ultimately is this all things redemption plan of God. The hope that we are being saved and redeemed. And one of the things being saved and redeemed is our affections and our loves. So gospel hope is not just that we're saved today from our sins, but that God is transforming us day by day to be more and more like the Lord Jesus. And so our love for each other is part of what's being transformed as well. So Paul's giving thanks, first of all, that their gospel life is marked by faith, love, and hope. Second thing we see about gospel life is that it comes by hearing the word of truth. This gospel life doesn't just appear out of nowhere. It just doesn't spring from the ground. Paul says in, in other places, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So gospel life starts by the hearing of the word of truth. He says it twice, doesn't he? You've heard it before in the word of truth. And just as you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. 
How could they have had this gospel life if no one had told them? And in this case, it was Epaphras. He was the one who told them about it. But gospel life has to come by hearing the gospel message, by hearing God's transcendent plan to redeem a lost creation. And that is why we put so much effort in this church into teaching the Bible, into teaching God's Word, because it is God's Word that explains God's plan for redemption. Gospel life comes by hearing the Word of truth. And that's why, for all its flaws, we're still attached to the label evangelical, because one of the things that marks us as a people is that we tell people what we believe. We share it. And though it's not key for tonight, Paul's also starting to twist the knife a little bit into some of the people opposing the worldview of the Colossians, because if what the gospel is is true, then by nature everything else is false. So gospel life comes by hearing the word of truth. And then thirdly, gospel life is growing and dynamic, and that's both globally and individually and personally within ourselves. And this section in verse 6 says about the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it. And so it's a bit of a tautology. What we're really saying is that gospel life is alive. It is a living thing. Why does Paul make such a big deal of that here? To answer that, really, you actually have to go back to the, not quite the first page of your Bible, but the first page of the text in Genesis chapter 1, when God says to this perfect new creation and looks at it all, and He turns to man and He says, what's His command? Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves in the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. And what's Paul telling them here? The gospel is bearing fruit and increasing. What's the thought in his head? It's that this initial command of God to bear fruit and multiply, which has been repeated throughout the Bible, finds now its last and its most complete fulfillment in the gospel message advancing across the world. That gospel news about Jesus was moving beyond the people of Israel and across the Roman world and eventually across the whole world. First, there had been a creation which had fallen. Now, Paul's pointing us to the fact that there's a new creation. The gospel is being fruitful and multiplying in the world. But that's also happening at their little church level, locally, and in their own lives, as we're going to see in a little bit. As it does among you, he says, gospel life is alive. It is alive. It is always growing, always acting, always producing fruit. We could get a biologist up here and tell us about the the signs of life, but most of us don't need that. If you're in a garden, especially if you're in my garden, it's very easy to look at a plant and say, it's dead, Nicholas. It's dead. Or if you're walking along the side of a road and perhaps you find an animal that's been, been hit by a vehicle, you don't need a vet. We look at it. There's no sign of life. It's dead. And so when we look at gospel life 
it should be alive in, the, in our own lives, in our church globally, in the Christian church globally. There should be life. There should be fruit. It should be increasing. Earlier this year, we were, we were doing James's letter, and James absolutely hit us around the head with this, didn't he? Faith without works is dead, doesn't exist, can't happen. Gospel life is growing and dynamic. So that's Paul's prayer of thanksgiving. Gospel life is marked by faith, love, and hope. Gospel life comes by hearing the word of truth. And gospel life is growing and dynamic. It is alive. Paul gives thanks for that in the life of the Colossians. Then we come to the second half of his prayer, where we're talking about his prayer of supplication for their gospel growth. So he's taking this idea that it's alive and growing, and now he's praying for that individually. So let's read that little section again, and then let's think about that. Verse 9, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So here we see Paul praying so earnestly for these people who he has never met for the growth of the gospel life, for their gospel growth in their church and in their individual lives. So what do we learn from his prayer about gospel growth? Well, first of all, we see that gospel growth starts with knowledge of God's will. That's his, the first bit of his prayer. Haven't ceased to pray for you that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. And this is one of the threads that's going to weave through Colossians as we see it. This idea about knowledge, understanding, wisdom, this is a core theme for Paul here. Later on, chapter 1, he says he's teaching everyone with all wisdom. In chapter 2, he's, he's hoping that they and, and those who he's never met will all reach the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. In chapter 3, he's told them to put aside the old self, put on the new self who's being renewed in its knowledge after the image of the Creator. Later on in chapter 3, he says, when you're amongst each other, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And then finally in chapter 4, that wisdom allows us to walk in wisdom to outsiders. So gospel growth starts with knowledge of God's will. And he prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will. Now, you're going to say this is semantics, but it is important. That, that idea of being filled with is not the idea of like that God would pour the knowledge in like pouring a jug into a glass or something. It's not a, a filling like that. Uh, it's, it's, it's a characteristic. So the best way I could think to explain this is the way we in this part of the world would maybe say, oh, there's Joe, he's full of crack. If you're not from this part of the world, that's mean they're full of good humor. So it, it, no, nobody just poured it into him. 
but it's just part of his nature. It's just part of who he is. It just oozes out of him. He's filled with it. And that's what Paul's asking for here. He's praying that they would be people who are filled with the knowledge of God's will, that they're full of it. And I was speaking to a friend recently about this, and and he was just reflecting on how um, this knowledge of God's will is is a thing that we can have. Knowing God's will is not a, a mystical experience that we need to go into a trance and apprehend. For, for Paul here, God's will is knowable. God's will is knowable. That's what he's recurring in this theme throughout Colossians. God's will can be known. And if we were to ask Paul himself, well, how do we know God's will? Paul would say, well, we, we know it from Scripture. And we go and look in some of the things he says in Romans. It's quite clear. We understand God in Scripture. We understand God in His revealed Word. And so this idea of will here, this is not God's will necessarily for you personally, as in, should I take that job or should I marry that girl? He's praying that we would understand God's will for creation, God's will for salvation, God's will for what He wants to do with this world. Also to understand His will for how we as His followers and disciples should live, things that are important to Him, things that matter to Him, things that He values. These are all the things that are revealed in His Word. And so Paul is praying that we would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. So the first thing we see about gospel growth is that it starts with the knowledge of God's will, knowing who He is and what He's about. That's the foundation. Then we see that gospel growth entails walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's quite a high bar, isn't it? I don't know if recently you felt you're worthy or not worthy of something. Sometimes if you follow a football team and they sign a player and it turns out they didn't do very much and they weren't worth the money, so he's not even worthy of wearing the jersey, not worthy of it. Or perhaps you, you, you watch films like A Few Good Men or you see people who recently a, a sailor in the Navy was lost as command because of conduct unbecoming, conduct that was unworthy of his position. Well, gospel growth entails that we walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. That's a high bar, isn't it? In my day-to-day life, do I walk in a way that's worthy of the Lord? How do we do that? I think it is us asking ourselves day-to-day, what would Jesus have me do? If the Lord was standing here with me right now, would I do this? Would I do something maybe a little different with that money? Would I perhaps not tell that joke? Would I perhaps not share that meme? Would I perhaps speak up for that person? We're asking ourselves, what would Jesus have us do? Because really to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord is to match the character of the Lord Jesus with the aim, as Paul says, of pleasing Him in every way. So you can see how that starts with a knowledge of God's will, can't you? When we know the Lord Jesus, when we know what He wants of us, what He expects of us, that's how we're able then to start to mirror that in our lives. So gospel growth starts with the knowledge of God's will. Gospel growth entails walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then finally, Paul gives us a couple of examples and tells us that gospel growth is marked by bearing fruit, increasing in knowledge, being strengthened, and giving thanks. 
These are not the only four marks of gospel growth, but these are typical of gospel growth. Bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power, and joyfully giving thanks. Just think about those for a minute each. Bearing fruit. What is fruit? It's one of these things we talk about in the church all the time, isn't it? There's somebody being fruitful. I've done it this evening already. Gospel life should be bearing fruit. What, what is fruit? Paul here says, well, in this case, it's bearing fruit in every good work. I think you could take a fairly wide view of what fruit is in your life. I think I would actually probably say gospel fruit is anything that wouldn't have been happening in your life or character if the gospel hadn't been part of it. So the slow formation of our Christian character, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that is fruit. Acts of kindness to our brothers and sisters in Christ, that is fruit. Acts of care for our neighbors and for those around us in the world and for strangers and for the widow and the orphan, all those things that God values, that is fruit. Seeing others converted through our our witness, that is fruit. Seeing broken relationships in our lives restored, that is fruit. Seeing habitual sin in our life laid aside, that is fruit. Zacchaeus is probably one of the, the best examples of this, isn't he? Meets the Lord, and what does he say? The half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll restore it fourfold. Fruit. Gospel growth marked by bearing fruit in every good work. Gospel growth marked by increasing knowledge of God. We've already thought about that, so we don't need to labor it. But I do think it's interesting, isn't it, that he starts with the knowledge of God as foundational, and then one of the fruits of that is more knowledge of God, and it's paired with bearing fruit. So it's this idea for Paul that increasing in our knowledge of God is not in like a vacuum. We're not sort of sitting in a quiet room increasing in our knowledge of God, and we're totally removed from the world around us. As we increase in our knowledge of God, as we grow, we bear fruit, and then as we bear fruit, we grow in our knowledge of God, and there's this virtuous cycle that goes on. Knowledge leads to action, and through obedience, then we learn more of God. So, bearing fruit, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience. Being strengthened with all power, with God's power, as it's very clear here. That is a supernatural strengthening that happens of our courage, our will, our determination, our ability to endure, our ability to show patience. And that happens because God does it. So, I was preparing this. I was trying to think, well, what's the application for that? How do we be strengthened with God's power? The reality is there's nothing we can do. God does it. God strengthens us with His power. That's why Paul's praying for it. In one of his other prison epistles, he he says to the Ephesians that God would grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. And so, as we grow as Christians, we are strengthened with God's power. And why is that so important? Because it allows us to endure, endure, and show patience. And that's endurance through hard times. 
whether it's persecution for being a Christian, whether it's how we weather the storms of life, whatever they are in your life right now. In fact, even just in its most basic form, it's a a witness to the world around us, isn't it? The steadiness of the Christian life, that quiet, confident endurance in the uncertainty of the world around us. Being strengthened by His power, And finally, one of the other marks of gospel growth that Paul highlights is that we give thanks with joy, joyfully giving thanks. And that theme of thankfulness is another one that we're going to see weaving through Colossians, being picked up from time to time. This idea that thankfulness is a real mark of Christian life. Thankfulness. I wonder how often we feel truly thankful to God, how how often we really cultivate that in ourselves. How often we talk to each other about being thankful, something we were thankful for, being thankful. So Paul's prayer of supplication for their gospel growth, we see that gospel growth starts with a knowledge of God's will. Gospel growth entails walking in a manner that's worthy of the Lord, and gospel growth is marked by bearing fruit, increasing in knowledge, being strengthened in His power, and giving thanks joyfully. So as we close tonight, we have to ask ourselves, so what? What next? I think we all probably get at least a gentle nudge from Paul about gospel growth in our own lives here. But I think for me, the challenge looking at this passage is to my prayer life. And I say this and share this particularly to those my age and younger, because generations above us have have been faithful soldiers in prayer. And most of what I'm going to suggest for us to help us in the discipline of prayer, they would consider almost not worthy of comment. But I think for my generation and for those younger than me, our prayer lives are not what Paul's prayer life was. Prayer does not look for me the way it looked for Paul. So how How do we look at Paul's example then and mirror that ourselves? Well, the first thing that struck me was that Paul was praying for people he'd never met, never met these people. And yet, look how earnestly and fervently and dedicated he is in his prayer for them. And you know, the Christian world is a very wide world. We have our own workers. The Lord has people in almost every country on earth. And it would be good for us to find one or two people, missionaries, groups of the Lord's people, whatever, somewhere we have never met, never been, and probably never will be, and to make it a regular pattern to pray for them, to widen our prayer horizons a little bit beyond the here and now for ourselves. Prayer for those we've never met. I think the second thing is praying with regularity. Paul was raised as a very traditional Orthodox conservative Jew. For him, prayer happened in the morning, happened at lunchtime, happened in the evening time, as regular as clockwork. And so when Paul says, I pray without ceasing, that's what he means, praying regularly in my life. There was a clear pattern of prayer in his life. Too often for me, prayer is something I fire off before dinner, after something has gone badly for me, or whenever it comes into my head just before I fall asleep at night. Maybe you can empathize with that. 
So perhaps we need to establish a discipline of prayer in our lives. Prayer of thankfulness in the morning. Prayer of supplication, perhaps, in the evening. Let's think about being serious about establishing a pattern of prayer in our lives. Prayer for those who haven't met, praying with regularity, praying consistently. So there are just some things we should always be praying for. Don Carson said about sanctification, it will not do to set aside time today to ask for our sanctification if we don't return to the request for another six months. We need some of God's blessings constantly, and we need to ask Him for them constantly so He constantly meets our needs. We need to be consistent in our prayer. Paul was praying for them constantly. This wasn't a one-off prayer that he said when he met Epaphras and said, yep, sure, I'll pray for the Colossians. This was a consistent thing in his prayer life. And there is a really helpful habit of writing or journaling for our prayer lives, writing down perhaps what we're going to pray for or what we have prayed for. And then when we come to our next prayer time, that keeps us to the same theme. I think also for those of us who are younger, um, in a world of TikTok and Twitter and social media, our attention spans like that. You know, we were in our home group on Thursday night and someone was talking about George Muller who prayed to two or three in the morning, prayed for hours. To most of us, that is just something our brains couldn't even conceive of. So writing or journaling about our prayers before we do them focuses our mind, disciplines us to think, what am I praying about here? Maintains our concentration, perhaps, for those of us who are younger while we're praying. Keeps us focused. And it also helps us deliver consistency in what we're praying for. It's not just what floats into my mind today. Helps us to pray consistently. Praying for those who haven't met, praying with regularity, praying consistently, praying thankfully. One of the benefits of journaling your prayers is that you can see and rejoice in answered prayer. But we need to lift our thankfulness beyond that, beyond just what has happened in our lives. We need to pray thankfully for who God is and what He is doing in this world. And one way to do that is to pray through some of the Psalms. Psalm 34, Psalm 111, Psalm 92, and on and on. It's not hard to find them. Psalms of thankfulness. Quick Google. And the psalmists give us language of thankfulness. And it's not a case of simply reading them out, but prayerfully and thoughtfully reading through them, thinking about each word and offering it up to the Lord. That will stir up thankfulness in our prayer life. Praying thankfully. And finally, I think praying spiritually. Because when we look at the content of Paul's prayers and most of the New Testament prayers, and perhaps look at the content of our own prayers, is there a lot of overlap? A lot of our prayer life in this modern world is for, please take this difficult situation away. Please get rid of this. Please resolve this, Lord. And yet the much more consistent theme in the New Testament is a prayer of, please help them endure this. Please build their character in this. Please work through this. In fact, when Paul prayed for something to be taken away, he says he prayed three times and God didn't do it. We need to pray for our own spiritual lives. Not to say that we don't bring things to the Lord and ask Him for resolution, but that we pray that those things, through those things, we would develop, that God would develop our character, that God would develop us spiritually, that God would draw us closer to Him through them to look again, maybe some of us, at the prayers in the New Testament 
and to see them as models for how we should pray. So there's some thoughts on prayer for all of us, myself first and foremost. Prayer for those we haven't met, praying with regularity, praying consistently, praying thankfully, praying spiritually. So we close. Gospel life is marked by faith, love, and hope. Gospel life comes by hearing the word of truth. Gospel life is growing and dynamic globally and personally. Gospel growth starts with knowledge of God's will. Gospel growth entails walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. Gospel growth is marked by bearing fruit, increasing in knowledge, being strengthened, and giving thanks. With prayer for ourselves and for each other, with the Lord's help, we will see gospel life and gospel growth in our lives and in our church today. Lord, we come before you still humbled and awed by the fact that we can approach you, the almighty God of the universe, that we can speak to you and ask you for our lives and our own little requests. And we thank you more than that, that you're interested, that you care, and that this is the channel that you have chosen to move. So Lord, as we reflect on the prayer of Paul for that little young church in Colossae, I pray that you would encourage each of us to follow in his discipline of prayer, to be challenged to take it seriously in our lives this week. Lord, we give you thanks as well for the reality that the gospel is a power that has been unleashed in this world, that the new creation has begun, that through your body you are redeeming all things to yourself, that gospel life is growing up in our lives, in our church, in our country, and across the world. And in the face of everything else, you are building your church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We thank you for the glorious good news about who Jesus Christ was. We pray that that news would impact home in the heart and life of anyone today who hasn't yet really seriously thought about it. Lord, we bring all of these things before you, not in our own strength, but through your strength, asking them ultimately for your glory in your name. Amen.